0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lends Me Your Ears, coming to you today from the Parrot Palace. If you hear birds in the background, it's not your imagination. There are many birds due to issues with power (laughs) over at our usual stop on CKDU. My name is Karsten Knox, and uh, I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris you can find at HalifaxBloggers.ca.
1: And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax with the Chronicle Herald and elsewhere, and it's great to be back. It is indeed. We've
0: had a little bit of a hiatus. Uh, now, on this podcast, we talk about film. We see something that's new in cinemas, and we compare it to old films and days gone by, and it just gives us a chance to watch things we haven't seen in a long time, and hopefully, you know, you might tag along and check some of that stuff out yourself. Today, we are deciding, checking out to see whether or not kids really have it together. Uh, (laughs) We're watching movies that feature children that may not all be for children. Coming right up on this
1: episode of Lends Me Your Ears. So what is the matter with kids today? That's the question we're going to answer, or at least ponder, chew over, on this episode of Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook, and... Uh, I'm sitting here with Carson Knox around the old foldable card table in the living room at the Parrot Podcast Palace here uh, at the corner of uh, North and Windsor. And yes, uh, we have just come through Hurricane Dorian or Hurricane Donaire, uh, as some have called it because it's an anagram. Or if you want to go all the way, Unicorn Diarrhea. As uh, someone uh, with an anagram generator has discovered, so uh, or they're just really good at. Oh, they're just really, yeah. I, I'm <laughs> guessing some help was involved, but yeah. But uh, but yes, we we've come through a hurricane. Uh, we were without power some of us for 48 hours or more. Some people still don't have power as of this recording. So we're glad that we can fire up the old. Uh, coal-powered laptop and uh, bring you an episode um, using this echoey uh, USB microphone and, and talk about some some new films and some films from days gone by that, uh, in this case, primarily have uh, or star uh, child casts. Either they have leading actors who are children or or uh, are about concerned groups of children, as the case may be. And uh, at the moment, it seems like there's a bunch of them in theaters that are brand new and also some classics from days gone by that we were able to take a look at.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny to think about uh, movies that feature kids. I mean, when I was a kid, I wasn't necessarily drawn to movies that had other kids in them. Like, I wanted to see a- movies for adults. That was the draw. Yes, exactly. You know, so, okay, so I did watch... The Bad News Bears, but in retrospect, I don't know if you've seen The Bad News Bears lately. (laughs) Not for kids. Not for kids, no. So, But that was, I think at the time, kind of marketed for... I mean, it was a family movie to some degree. It was a comedy. Yeah. Uh, And now it's like very tasteless in many respects. Uh, But uh, I don't know. You know what? I haven't seen the remake. There was a remake, The Richard Linkletter.
1: Yeah, with Billy Bob Thornton. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It wasn't bad. Okay. I mean, the original is pretty well revered. Then there were two sequels... That may not be on the same level as the original Walter Matthau. I think one of them had, uh, I think, Tony Curtis. I think it was... Oh, okay. Maybe that was Bad News Bears Go to Japan. And right. then it was Bad News Bears in Breaking Training. Uh, and, uh, you know, not as good, but had some of the original kids came back, even if they didn't get the uh, the adult leads back. And, uh, you know, worth, worth checking out somewhere. I bet there's like a Blu-ray set that has all of the originals. The three films on it, I wouldn't mind shelling out for that. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a fun film. You get to see kids swear and and be racist, do, be racist, and do <laughs> nasty things. And yeah. and, and uh, yeah. it very, it's very seventies. Yeah. But, but yeah. and Walter Matthau was so wonderful in that. And I think mm-hmm. was it uh, Michael Ritchie? I think directed that. I think was you might be right. Yeah. On a real hot streak there, uh, from films like The Candidate and Downhill Racer and uh, which we talked about, which I think we talked the last about time. previously, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Smile. His sort of satirical look at beauty pageants which is a real uh a real buried gem from the 1970s that i recommend uh, seeking out but um but uh, now we've got we've got some horror movies that have kids in them we've got some comedies that have kids in, and kids in them and if you hear this in time you may still be able to see this in fact i think uh i think it uh chapter two will still be in theaters yeah, because yeah. it just opened um by yeah, the time we we'll talking about
0: that a little later on um but we also saw good boys which is actually i think Doing pretty well given it's been in Still, cinemas for yeah, like it a was, month.
1: Yeah, it was up there at the top for a while until that. Uh, uh, what was it uh, the Angel Down or whatever? The, the, oh yeah, the, the, J- Jared Butler, the Jared Butler uh, Secret Service movie, the third in the in the trilogy. In yeah. this
0: like. I'm baffled at the success of these movies because they are not good. They're not good, but I guess people who miss uh, Liam Neeson movies decide that they go to these. Right, there aren't as many Liam Neeson middle-aged action movies as there were at one time. Uh, But we both saw Good Boys, uh, directed by Gene Stupinski, written by Stupinski and Lee Eisenberg. And uh, I wanted to give the film a benefit of the doubt, at least partly due to the inclusion of Will Forte and Molly Gordon in the cast, who were both in Booksmart, a movie I loved from earlier this year. Also, the DJ Shadow and Run the Jewels song, which was a big part of that previous film, was also yes. in this. And But this one has about the fraction of that previous film's sophistication. This is sitcom-level depth for most of its running time. It squeezes laughs out of tw- 12-year-olds saying rude words, if that's your bag, then <laughs> fill your boots. I mean, the kids are fun. I like the kids and by the end of the film I did wind up caring about them. But I felt like I felt it was pretty shallow
1: laughs for the most part. It didn't it didn't grab me. Yeah, it's not on the same level as BookSmart. It's not It's not a, super bad. Either. It's not as sophisticatedly crude, if I may use that <laughs> yes. oxymoron. Yeah. Uh as super bad, you're right. And that's the film that people are obviously gonna make the, the strongest comparisons to. Yeah, these guys um, are a little younger than the oh, sure. super bad for the most part. Yeah, they're and they're they're really clueless when it comes to the uh, the opposite sex and which yeah. is kind of like the point of their quest to figure out, you know, to spy on some teenagers so they can learn how to kiss before they go to a kissing party, which is a pretty <laughs> a pretty ridiculous kind of plot. But then you know, I think back to when I was in grade six or whatever and, and it's like yeah, you thought about that stuff a lot when you were 12 true. years old. But I, I, I think I was just a little more savvy about the
0: mechanics of, even if I hadn't had a lot of actual sex education in school, I think the schoolyard had prepared me at least in some respects. Though, I guess come to think of it, I
1: did find some uh, some biology a little bit mysterious. <laughs> yes, well, that's <laughs> that's the case. You know, we were limited to the playboys that we found under bushes in the woods, which seems to have been a real universal thing. Like, yeah. Like, I grew up, in a, in a area of Dartmouth where they were just across the street, it was just woods and it was protected forest that around a lake that, uh, couldn't be developed. And so that just stayed woods. It's still the same today as it was, you know, 40 odd years ago. And, uh, and there was always somebody, I don't know who, but was always hiding adult magazines under, under fir trees and under, you know, under in bushes and things. And then as I grew older, I found out this is actually kind of a common thing that people of a certain generation, of the, the pre-internet generation experience. And in fact, Chester Brown, the great Canadian comic book artist, did a whole book about this called The Playboy, about a kid who finds a playboy hidden in the woods under a board or something like that. Uh, and he becomes really obsessed with it. And so it's it's clearly a bizarre phenomenon yeah. of, of, of that time. I didn't
0: have to go... My dad had a subscription uh, <laughs> and, and for years and years and years. And so I was... I had quite easy access to it. He never really minded my reading them. Um, but uh, I remember one day when I was in my teens, he finally decided he's had enough carting them around, yeah. and he wanted to sell them all, and he brought them to a used bookstore magazine store, and they were going to give him, like, five cents a copy. And he couldn't believe, given how much he spent on them over the years, they weren't worth more. And he just got pissed off, so he just basically dumped them, and that was the end of it. Someone, you know, had, it was almost like a complete set for, for many years, but... Anyway, there, there's a little bit of a, of, of Knox family details that <laughs> maybe more than you needed. Uh, but yeah, you, you know, of course, you're fascinated by this stuff when you're a kid. Uh, and, uh, you know, we've got these three kids, Max, Jacob Tremblay, who's very good. He's at, very funny. Here, uh, yes. Lucas, played by Kenneth, uh, Keith L. Williams, and Thor, played by Brady Noon. And they are uncool suburban tweens. And they call themselves the beanbag boys because they like to hang on beanbags uh, and as you mentioned, they go to a party, because they want to go to this cool kids party where they'll be kissing, uh, and so what they do is, when they, they have no idea how to deal with this, they use, uh, Max's dad's drone to spy on these two, uh, teenage girls, who they figure know a lot more about it, uh, well, one of them do, they, they think, and unfortunately, uh, that doesn't go very well, and, then drugs get involved, and it's they, it prompts them sort of to skip school Ferris Bueller style to try to fix all their problems so they can <laughs> still go to that party. And, uh, you know, at, at, about halfway through this, there's a scene where they're trying to cross a highway, and I'm like, in the middle of it, I'm like, why are they doing this again? Like, I'd completely forgotten what the <laughs> point of this whole thing was. They're actually trying to get to a mall on the other side of the highway so they can buy another drone. And it's all just... There's not a lot of laughs for me in, in that point. I'm just like... Because it doesn't feel like there's much to root in genuine experience. But by the end of the film, I found myself really engaged. In the, in the third act, there's a scene... Uh, and I'm not saying too much here to spoil it. But there's a scene in a frat house where with uh, involving a paintball gun that's very funny.
1: Yes, that's very well staged. Yeah. Uh, that is definitely... I really highlights.
0: enjoyed that. And then, of course, there's a blowout that the splits the three friends. and They have to reassess their relationships. And a little bit of drama actually i think helps make it funnier in some ways uh, and the, i wouldn't say that it's substantial but it's enough to make me feel a little more engaged by it and i, I really like the sort of heartwarming theme of embracing who you are rather than what the popular kids expect of you and i i was okay with that so you know i though i wouldn't suggest that kids who are the age of the kids in the movie see this movie because clearly this, <laughs> this stuff on here they shouldn't be watching this is an r-rated film but uh yeah i mean aside from it being kind of juvenile i I guess i warmed to it
1: yeah i i think that it depends on how much you buy into the charm of of the three young boys who star in this film and and i you know jacob tremblay is great i mean obviously he was terrific in room but he he's you know i'm hoping that he has like kind of a a gentle career arc that, that blossoms in adulthood and it seems like he's you know, he has, I, don't, I haven't seen him in mean, anything terrible yet. So, no. you know, I don't think he's going the Danny Bonaduce route anytime soon. Let's hope not. <laughs> I mean, it's
0: hard to know, right? Because these child actors get some attention and, and it can really mess with them.
1: Um, yeah. Depending well, on their
0: parents. And that, their, yeah, that's the, that's the biggest thing. Their family life, I think.
1: And, but, uh, uh, is it um, Keith L. Williams? I think it was, it, who I, I really uh, enjoyed on this series, uh, Last Man on Earth, with Bill Hader. Or, sorry, with uh, Will Forte um they had a great rapport there i mean obviously they don't they don't spend as much time if any time together in this film but uh because the the dad goes away and leaves the kids to not touch the drone (laughs) it's like uh like lock it up (laughs) yeah seriously are you an idiot (laughs) Uh, oh yeah of course he is it's bill forte so (laughs) but uh but it's kind of nice to see them kind of reunited in a way uh in in this film um you know and and the, the the dynamic of the three kids kind of reminded me a little bit of the friends that I had and the the sort of personality clashes amongst the the guys that I was friends with at that age so it, it kind of you know I, I guess it had maybe a bit more resonance for me in that regard and you know Riding our bikes to the mall, which involved crossing a highway right, as well, right. maybe not quite as busy as the one in this film, but but certainly just you know equally dangerous. Yeah. You know when you're on a banana seat bike, uh, you know, I <laughs> or th- a big wheel. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah, I did something like that when I was much much younger. I went to a local shopping center in Ottawa that involved crossing like six lanes of traffic, and I was like four years old. Oh but wow! I, I, to this day, I don't know how I did it, but anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, I, I like the dynamic between the kids. There are definitely plot points that don't ring true like when like one of the teenage girls opts to you know buy them a new drone kind of thing so yeah. they can get their drugs back it's like pretty sure that the drone is worth a lot more than your drugs I don't yeah. you know, I know you're like sort of you know again like sort of like book smart. they're kind of upper middle class California I think in California no they're, they're they're somewhere in the Midwest I think it was yeah obviously was shot camera. in LA but I think it's they're supposed to be in like Illinois or someplace right um, the, that sort of John Hughes ass exactly, suburbia, yeah. Yeah. and uh, you know that part kind of like yeah I don't really buy that part, but uh, but the relationship you know the relationship of the kids to the teenagers and I think back about you know how teenagers were to be feared awed and avoided at all costs mm-hmm. when you're you know when you're twelve years old uh you know th- that part certainly uh, felt real to me as well but uh, but again th- but then you get into the high slapstick of like one of the kids you know one kid dislocates his arm and it's that's you know that's Played way over the top, and like like a lot of the notes in the film. But for whatever reason, I just seemed to be in the mood for this movie at the time right. that I saw it, and uh, and and enjoyed it for the most part. Well, that's the thing about
0: comedy, right? It's we we whenever we get into comedy on this podcast, or generally when I write about it on my film blog. uh I always feel like I have to add a little asterisk saying, you know, your mileage may vary. Like, comedy is so subjective. It really is, yeah. And, and even on a different day, you might feel completely different about a film depending on how much sleep you've had or, you know. Like, that's just the weird thing about it. I mean, I feel like movies with kids... Uh, you know, there have been a lot of them. And some of them actually are genuinely for kids. Like, I think, I feel like Stand By Me, which is like a high watermark for drama and comedy for kids. It's got a lot of adult themes. It's got some heavy issues. But I think kids the age of the kids in the movie could watch it and get a lot out of it. Uh, I was a little older when it first came out, but I I really liked it. Now, um, you watched... I guess also kind of a standard bearer, uh, Huckleberry Finn, which I've I've never seen, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Um, do you want to talk about that at all?
1: Yeah, well, I was I was prompted to watch Huckleberry Finn. I've had this copy of it for ages. It's directed by Michael Curtiz, who was the great Hollywood director who made Casablanca, and you know who worked in the silent era and was kind of like the dean of Warner Brothers studios directors. I mean, he, you know, he, he's he's kind of famous for. Not necessarily having a, uh, a major style of his own, but he certainly borrowed from the best. Uh, you know, he'd thrown hints of expressionism, uh, and you know, but he was a bit of a romantic. But apparently he was just a real SOB on the set. But, uh, you know, especially when he was working with Errol Flynn, he made a number of films with Errol Flynn, and they, too, apparently hated each other. Oh, wow. But Flynn did his best work under Curtiz's direction, maybe uh-huh. because Curtiz wouldn't take any of Flynn's, you know, philandering, lazy bullpucky so um so somehow he got the best performances out of out of him and you know he's not known as being an actor's director you know he worked with great actors like bogart and so on and and they did great work for him but but he was just one of those guys who could direct anything he did yankee doodle dandy a musical right then he could do these hard-boiled crime pictures or he could do the adventures of robin hood the guy just took every assignment and just you know made them into classics so well, this sort of classic material here what yeah is, what does he do with it? Is there any
0: any of it shot on location or is it all studio stuff
1: it's all looks pretty shot on location okay. like there's a lot of stuff shot on the river um the oh, let's see if i can refresh my memory the star of the film eddie hodges is the kid's name who plays a uh, tuck finn um he hadn't been a hit uh, a couple of years earlier in a frank sinatra picture i think called hole in the head um where he played a young kid who sinatra kind of takes under his wing and, uh, and they had do a little musical number together, and it, he became a big favorite. Um, so then they, they, oh, he's perfect to play Huck Finn, and he kind of is, he, he's a little, I mean, the film is very much 1960 or thereabouts. Like It, okay. has, it has that early 60s feel, so it's got a bit of like a, and Curtis gives it that kind of classic Hollywood feel. which Curtiz had like 25 years of experience at this point, or more? Oh, way more, because he, yeah. he, like I say, he worked in The Silent Days. Oh, wow. Plus okay. he directed in Europe before that, because he right. came from, from, either Germany or Eastern Europe. I think he might have been Hungarian. But um, anyway, so, so you know, he had a lot of experience and it's, it's really well told. Um, and uh, it's, I mean, there, there are issues with Huckleberry Finn. There is some racism in the book. I mean, I, I think that uh, part of it is, has been interpreted in different ways over the years. I think Mark Twain was reflecting on how things were at the time because the slave named Jim and the book does feature the N-word in it. I think it does pop up maybe once or twice, uh, especially when uh, Huck Finn's sort of alcoholic, you know, raging father refers to Jim. Uh, but uh, but it's certainly not the author's viewpoint. Like, in fact, they make, you know, Huck Finn early in the film doesn't want, you know, because he's fleeing with an escaped slave, he doesn't want anyone to think he's an abolitionist. And, uh, but, you know, obviously the whole point of the film is to have him soften in his attitude. And in fact, genuinely wants to help Jim you know get over to the over the mason dixon line to where he he can be free so you know that change in attitude from you know the pre-civil war you know the slaves should know their place and all that kind of stuff um to you know that the, everybody should be equal and everyone deserves their freedom uh i think it was an important part of the book it's just i guess for some people it's hard to get over the early part of the novel where you know huck finn is kind of a racist right you know sure. even though he's a little kid but he's he's got a lot to learn and, but he does learn over the course and that's, that's the whole point. But, um, you know, some people can't get past the, the fact that, well, yeah, in the early on in the story, he's, he's actually kind of like, you know, slavery is a thing and we should abide by those rules and, uh-huh. and all that kind of thing. But, you know, of course his heart softens as they, they travel up the river and, and, um, Jim is very well played by, uh, uh an athlete, uh, I guess a former boxer who, uh, um, uh, Archie, Archie Moore is his name. He's. And he's, he's pretty good. He's not a natural actor, per se, but uh, but he, he's, he's pretty good as Jim. He, he's, he's very enthusiastic. He's very much into this character, and he's very likable. So the, all of that kind of makes up for whatever, you know, flaws in, in, in his lack of thespian experience might be. Um, and then it's got this great cast of characters, like, uh, for example, Tony Randall shows up as uh, with Mickey Shaughnessy. They're a pair of Hucksters, or con artists who recruit Huck, to help them with their scam uh on the uh, a grieving family they, they're trying to portray the overseas relatives of a, a sort of a well-to-do man who's recently passed away and they're playing his his pastor brother and cousin or something uh-huh. like that or his two brothers who were pastors from england and of course there's a lot of wordplay and and subterfuge as they try to pull out this con um patty mccormick from the bad seed shows up as the daughter of the deceased man. And she's like trying to find the holes in their story. She, like she knows okay. they're up to no good. Her sister is totally taking in, taken in by the hucksters. So that's a great subplot. Um, and then uh, towards the end, there's a, they wind up with a circus and there's some great humor there um, with uh, Andy divine, who was a great character actor. He's in a lot of Westerns uh, in the 1950s and, and earlier. Um, he he's the head of he's the ringmaster of the circus and Buster Keaton is the very ineffective lion tamer, so it's great to see Buster show up oh, towards the cool. end of the film. So it's it's very episodic, but that's the nature of the film. And and uh, and th- there's some beautiful location work, and it's kind of it's definitely has that kind of end of the studio system kind of feel about it because it's it's you know it's shot in in cinemascope it's it's got a lot of grandeur about it especially when they're on the river or on this the river boats or whatever um but at the same time it it very it feels like a style that was already out of fashion by then so right um you have to kind of look at it as a bit of a period piece but it's one of many many versions of huckleberry finn there was there was an earlier version in the i think in the 1930s with uh, mickey rooney as huckleberry finn who was you know obviously he was the most popular child actor and some some years he was the number one box office star apparently um for those movies he did with judy garland but wow. so he seems like a natural but mickey's style of acting it, it can be a real uh, uh you need to take that with a real grain of salt he was days. he was bigger than Sh- shirley temple yeah well i, I guess you know <laughs> <That> <laughs> like, surprises me i, I mean speaking uh, of children in film well he, i mean he had the double whammy of the 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 uh the Judy Garland musical, Strike Up the Band, and so on. Plus, he was in this series of films called Andy Hardy, where he played this small town boy, and he, the fan. He had the the mom, the dad was the local judge, and. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of MGM starlets kind of made their early appearances in these films. It was kind of a testing ground for some of their new talent as well. Uh, Lana Turner famously shows up in one of them. Uh, I think Judy Garland might actually show up in one of them as well, but those were insanely popular and incredibly inexpensive to make because they used the same sets, the same, st- there's a street on the MGM lot that was just called the Andy Hardy street. And it was used, and after those movies were done, then it got used in every sitcom and TV show. Like, you can watch old TV shows and instantly spot that stream. I wonder uh, how, uh,
0: I wonder what the uh, labor rules were back then about working kids, like how many hours they could be on set at a time. I Uh, suspect it wasn't nearly as protective as it is now. Oh, certainly not. Well,
1: if you hear the (laughs) stories about Judy Garland on the set of The Wizard of Oz and, you know, how many hours she had to work and... Pills they gave her to keep her thin. All, it's just a kind of a nightmare. But yeah. you know, I guess Andy Rooney had a very. I mean, he, I guess he just loved it. I guess he just mm. loved doing that work. If you ever saw interviews with him, you know, he talks about it. He just lived for being on in front of a movie camera. Mm. Um, but it, like I say, oh, his Mickey, huck Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney. Yeah. yeah. So uh, he, uh, but his his huck Mickey Rooney right. kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then in the seventies, and I now in the seventies they they did um, there was a. Uh, Tom, of course, Tom Sawyer comes first I think uh-huh. but um there was a Tom Sawyer movie made with a character named Johnny Whitaker and then it was so it was a musical version with uh starring Johnny Whitaker who was famous from a number of TV shows uh I remember him from Sigmund and the Sea Monsters one of those Sid and Marty Croft people in giant costumes kind of shows but I think he was also on, a, on Family Affair which was a popular family drama of the late 60s and then um and then it was so popular, they made a Huck Finn sequel, uh, which I think was also a musical. And I remember seeing the Tom Sawyer uh, film in the theaters as a kid. And there was some, even though it was a musical and it was a little more lighthearted than Huck Finn, there's still some terrifying moments where, uh, you know, Tom Sawyer is being chased by through a cave by a hobo or something like that. Oh. And, and Jodie Foster plays Becky, his, his yeah. kind of fee, young female friend. So, uh, you know, and, and then there was another version of Huckleberry Finn made in, I want to say, the early 90s with mm. Elijah Wood. Playing okay. the character, okay. So it's you know it's a story that keeps getting made. You know I kind of wonder if there's going to be another kind of go around with the Mark Twain stories at some point. I, I don't know how in favor out of favor they've become over time, but uh, but they are classic Americana, right. and you know and certainly uh, some of the biggest selling novels of their time in the mm. in the eighteen hundreds early
0: 1900s. Now, you mentioned uh, Jodie Foster, and before we move on to discussing more frightening sort of (laughs) horror-related films, we should probably nod to uh, Bugsy Malone from 1976, where she stars, along with Scott Baio, uh, in the Alan Parker film, which is a gangster picture, a gangster musical, no less, all cast with children.
1: Yes. And it is the
0: strangest (laughs) thing. I mean... It's got a peculiar charm just because the whole project seems sort of perverse. Like who is this for? It's I don't think it's necessarily for kids, but like adults I guess could get out of it. The idea that it's it is very true to gangster pictures in many respects. I started watching this thing and about halfway in there were scenes where I forgot that they were children. Like, I almost, like, where two characters are talking and I'm engaged in what they're saying, I'm engaged <laughs> in all that, like, hard-boiled dialogue, and I'm just enjoying the costumes and the look of the thing, and I suddenly was like, right, these these are, like, 11-year-olds or
1: 10-year-olds. <laughs> like, it's, this, it's really peculiar. Um, yeah, 13-year-old with a pencil mustache. It's just a little... A little disorienting.
0: Yeah, yeah, and they the machine guns shoot ice cream. Like it is really <laughs> bizarre, but uh, but I think worth seeking out just by
1: virtue of its uh, uniqueness. It, it's fun. Like we were watching it just before you got here and before we started recording. And uh, Jordana, uh, my partner, she actually remembered a friend of hers who was teaching theater at the time, actually staging a version with a high school class back in Australia. Uh, And so she remembers it through that and they probably watched the film on VHS to get psyched up for it, I suppose. Um, You know, I certainly remember when it came out at the time and all the hype there was around this film. I don't think it was a box office success because it is so weird and maybe off-putting. It was a big hit in England. Okay. For some reason and had more of a cult following there that's continued. But uh, but it's they put a lot of money into this film. It, it's it's it looks expensive. Lots of set design, uh, you know, period costumes. Uh, it, it looks great. And, uh, and Jodi's kind of, you know, it's remembered as being like one of her big early films because she was in a lot of stuff around this time, like, you know, when she was, like, 13 or so. Yeah, there's, like, Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver and uh, Freaky Friday. A Little Girl Lived Down the Lane, which we've talked about in our Scary Movies podcast um, episode. Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, her other Scorsese film, um, but also a bunch of Disney films. You know, it was Mm -hmm. a really interesting career that she had and that she, you know, eased out of rather gracefully um, with a bit of a stint at Yale just to give her some educational cred. Um, you know much to her credit but uh, but here she's kind of third build she's like the the gangster's mall she's not really the main female lead but she is like the showgirl who has a lot more personality than the main the, the poor young actress who plays the main female lead in this film you know the, uh, Jody clearly outshines her in the character department and in fact the main uh, the main actress whose name escapes me, Whose name escapes me, but uh, she really did not do anything else after right. Bugsy Malone. Right. And of course, Bugsy is played by Scott Baio, who went on to become Chachi on Happy Days, and uh, Charles in Charge, uh, and uh, and so on. But um, and and then kind of a weird right wing annoyance on Twitter. But uh, <laughs> right. But but here he's got a lot of charm playing the kind of the, the wise guy who rises up through the ranks, and and uh, I like seeing all these gangster cliches kind of turned on their heads, like like the Tommy guns that fire ice cream or cream puffs or whatever the heck they're the sponge guns they're called um so it is kind of weird that it's a bunch of kids pretending to be adults uh and you know they drive around in these pedal driven cars like the the attention to detail and the weird details they come up with to kind of replace the more adult stuff is is pretty pretty interesting to see all the different corners that's directed by alan parker who would later make pink floyd's the wall so you know very weird career uh, for for all involved. But uh, but definitely worth seeing if you've never seen it. The music by Paul Williams is terrific. Uh, and and yes, and all the songs are sung by adults. So the, the kids are all lip syncing to adult vocals just to make it even that much more surreal. So when IT came
0: out, the Stephen King adaptation in 2017 was a big hit. I didn't go and see it. Uh... I remember vaguely the Tim Curry version, the series, going back, but I was never, I never read that particular King book. I've read others. Um, but I sort of was like, I knew there was a sequel coming. I thought, I'm just going to watch the two of them closer together. So that's what I did in the last week. I watched It, and then I went to see It, Chapter 2. Um, and uh, it's, you know, the story is these group of kids in a small town in Maine, Derry, Maine, uh, discover that this is a bad place to live if you're a child, because children vanish. And they've been, that's been happening for years. Uh, but also adults, and they discover there's a pattern and it has something to do with a, uh, a sewer-dwelling clown named uh, Pennywise. And uh, there is a lot of genuinely creepy stuff here. I, I really enjoyed the quality of the, the big budget, kind of, this is like an uh, an event horror. You know? Like, it looks good, and they've They've definitely taken a lot of the good. You can tell it's a King adaptation. There's the storytelling is very deft. Um, I I like the kids a lot. I really enjoyed them in the first film, and then in the in the sequel they come back in flashback, which I enjoyed as well. Um, I you know it's funny. It's hard to now having seen them close together. It's hard to separate the two. I feel like the, it works as one long six hour almost six hour yeah. feature film um i had problems with both films in fact in some ways i felt like the second film it explained some of the plot problems i had with the first film much better like the origin of the of the antagonist uh, at the end of the first film i'm like where did this guy even come from yeah. like why didn't they answer any of these questions it's one of the dilemmas of splitting it in two <laughs> yeah indeed indeed um and i felt like they could have maybe seeded more stuff They could have included the adults in the first film and and had it be a little more non-linear, which is, I understand, the way the book is. But it does... It is genuinely scary. Like, I often say in this podcast, I'm not a horror guy, which means it's I'm not... It's not my favorite genre, but I will go and see the horror stuff that's really well-reviewed. Like, I went to see um, Midsummer this year, and I, I will go and see that stuff. Um, it's not that I don't like being scared. I like actually enjoy the feeling of, like, a genuine creep-out. I'm not a fan the of... trashy stuff. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the trashy it's time, stuff.
1: It's a time suck. <laughs> and I, I
0: feel like the gore, sometimes... You know, a horror a, a filmmaker will replace genuine creep with gore and stuff. That I just I'm like, I I feel when horror is bad, it, I'm I'm no fan of it. Then I'm just like, you know, we've seen all this before. Show me something that's new. And there are some things in this film, while these films, while being very indebted to 80s horror in some ways, it's very. In, in the second film especially it oh, yes. on 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 Kubrick The Shining there's a reference to The Shining um, there's a few <laughs> yeah yeah, and I, I enjoyed that um, but it still felt fresh enough to keep me engaged um I uh, I did enjoy the uh, cameos by Peter Bogdanovich and King in the yes. second film, and the bizarre moment where Juice Newton's Angel of the Morning is playing over a character getting doused with black goo, and like, what is even going on oh, in yeah, that, that scene? Uh, yeah, that that scene has really
1: twisted a lot of people the
0: wrong way. But uh, <laughs> I, I'm not sure what that was about. But but I I also I've heard read some people uh, really. I guess celebrating the casting of the adults and the kids. And and some of that is great. Obviously, Jessica Chastain, you can't go wrong. And I think Bill Hader and uh, James McAvoy are both very good. But I wanted to, when I heard that Hader was in the second film, I thought he was going to play Bill, the tall, lanky kid who has the list because Hader is tall and lanky and he could play that kind of awkward Kind of character I've seen him do that often. Do
1: Vincent Price?
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this would be perfect for him. So when I realized he's not playing that character, he plays the Finn Wolfhard character grown up. I kind of had to. Uh, it took me about half hour to like adjust my brain. I was like, oh, okay. So so James McAvoy is playing the sort of leader, the ostensible leader of the group. But he's in as an adult. He's no longer really the leader. He just he's very changed. And yeah. Uh, uh yeah, I. I I guess because Hayter's
1: character is a comedian. Yeah, it makes um, sense. It makes sense. It's sort of why they went that way. Yeah. I
0: also felt like casting Finn Wolfhard in the ridge of the first film brought parallels to Stranger Things, which is a which is a series with some horror in it and certainly a lot of love for the '80s, which and Stephen King and Stephen King that I felt in some ways was more successful than these two
1: films. But but maybe that's unfair to compare them. I don't know. Yeah, it is kind of weirdly cyclical that Stranger Things, which is inspired by it and by you know and by stand by me and the, yeah. or the body is the short story was called yeah. uh and then but now he's in the movie version of the book that inspired the tv state the tv series yeah that it's made, all connected th- isn't it that made him uh household name more or less yeah. uh you know yeah it's weirdly he's like the snake eating its tail in, in summer yeah. yeah. but uh but you know the, the, he he's certainly a young actor that is fun to watch and then he can be funny and he can be terrified and, uh, and completely sympathetic.
0: So. Yeah, and I think he actually looks more like James McAvoy. Like, they should have switched. Anyway, I, that's the last
1: I'll say Nothing about Nothing we it. can do about that now. No, no. Uh,
0: <laughs> I, I, I really... I was glad to see both of these films very close to each other because it did feel like a unified uh, project in a way that forgave some of the problems that I think the films have. I don't think that the second film can justify its two-hour, 45 minutes running time. Like, that last... The final... You know, denouement with uh, with the clown just goes on and yeah, on it is, and
1: on. It does go on forever. Yeah, and and in the same at the same point, they still like leave out details like the the, the bully that gets the busts out of the psychiatric ward early in the film. You know, has you know, certainly has a bigger role to play in the book. Right. Uh, that it, and he was so prominent in the original film that when his part gets cut, so to speak uh in in the second half <laughs> yeah, and, yeah and apparently okay. there was there's like twice as much material with his character that the director had, okay. to, had to cut away uh I, yeah know, i thought it he was a, i like that that there were other characters that could be antagonists
0: in this yes that could come back and play prominent roles uh yeah and there's the uh the old lady in the apartment that uh, beverly goes to and she's connected to the clown in some ways and, well yeah in the know, book
1: uh pennywise is just one manifestation of this right this power from beyond right which, well this as they explain early in part two is a, it's a comet that fell to earth uh-huh. you know hundreds of years ago um you know before before it had been settled by the white man so uh but but pennywise you know they're basically manifestations of their targets fears and of uh-huh. course clowns are scary so yeah um and it's and it's the other thing about the second. I mean, I enjoyed them both. Uh, the second half opens with a horrific hate crime uh, committed against uh, two men uh, who, who encounter some rednecks at a carnival. Yeah. And uh, and it, there's this and nothing. I don't find anything is as hor- that follows is as horrific. Yeah. As that very realistic crime hate crime at the start of the film, and uh, it was especially tough for me to watch because. I remember the crime it's based on. It's actually inspired by a real death that happened in Bangor where where um, uh, basically two, two men were walking across a bridge in Bangor and uh, this car full of dumb rednecks stopped and they got out and they beat the crap out of one of them and threw him into the river. Uh-huh. And so it's basically portrayed, I mean, I, I can't imagine being like somebody who knew one of those people and, and uh, going to this movie and seeing this relived on the big screen. Yeah. You know, it, it be, it's kind of, it's very traumatic. And yeah. a, it's getting, a, a, I mean, it's only been out for a few days and already that scene is drawing some attention for, you know, how horrific it is. It is. You're right. In some ways, because of the, the, the tone, the
0: realistic tone of it, it seems an odd match to some of the other stuff that's going on. I mean, there's violence in the first part of the movie that's also really hard yeah. to watch. And actually, right, almost directly following the scene you're talking about, when we meet Beverly, oh, yeah, she's with, being abused her by her husband. I know it's like, okay, we get that she's replaying the mistakes. I yes. mean, her her father was abusive, and so now she's chosen a man to be with who's abusive. But it's really heavy-handed in a way that I was just like, ugh, this just makes me feel kind of queasy. Yeah, the, um, and the
1: guy playing her husband, obviously he's only in one scene. but Yeah, he's not very good. He's not very good. No. And I think the TV movie had the same issue, actually, because I remember the portrayal of it in the TV version, which is still worth seeing because... I th- I think Tim Curry is def still the definitive Pennywise despite the right. fact that Bill Skarsgård does that weird thing with his eyes and has, you <laughs> yeah. know, much better makeup I
0: guess. Yeah, and but, and CGI quality, you know, the, yeah, exactly, the yeah. effects are are pretty great for the most part. Not not all of them. I I wasn't all that into the uh the uh, chi- the fortune cookies that turn into like <laughs> the bugs and like bats bugs and, and, yeah, like creatures. out of a Guillermo del Toro movie except Guillermo would have done it with a lot more, you know. Vim and vigor, I think.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. And and in fact, I don't know if we should mention that the, along similar lines. There's sc- scary stories to tell in the dark, which I think might still be playing in in some places. But it's produced by Del Toro, and it's oh, about yeah. it's about a bunch of kids uh, who uh, are dealing a with racist bullies, but also um, you know get stuck in a, in a creepy haunted house with lots of hidden passageways and right and a, and a weird twisted past. And uh, I really enjoyed it, but it's it's got the Del Toro kind of co-wrote it and produced it. He didn't okay. direct it, but uh, but the, I like the group of kids and I like the fact that it doesn't go for a lot of the obvious scare. It's more about atmosphere and it's actually meant for for younger viewers. It's like rated, okay. it's like 14A. So if you're, right. you know, I, th- I think it's really pitched at a mid mid to late teen audience, but does it in a really smart way, you know, that it's well-made, it's well-written, well the characters are well-drawn. And uh, it kind of reminded me of seeing The Fog when I was 14, and I was able to get into the theater to see John Carpenter's The Fog, which at the time I just thought was a super scary movie. And years later, I realized that he was kind of making a horror film for a younger audience, but didn't tell anybody at the time. It wasn't until years later that he said, yeah, it wasn't, it was more of like a horror movie for teenagers as opposed to Halloween, which would have been restricted and that sort of thing. So it's kind of a, a nod to those sort of things. And based on a very popular series of horror books for young kids or young readers, so, so uh you know, if you haven't seen it by now i definitely recommend it it's 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 a good watch well moving from the subject of kids and horror how about a movie about horrific kids or in this case a horrific kid and that's uh the bad seed uh with uh, a, a memorable performance by uh, young patty mccormick um who uh this film has been immortalized in the writing of John Waters oddly enough who loves this film to death and I think might have even cast Patty in one of his later films I think she must might must be the melodrama I think, I think she turns up in like <laughs> Serial Mom or, or something like that mm-hmm. um,
0: I can see I can see why John Waters would like it
1: yeah it's yeah. it's based on a play uh, Maxwell Anderson who's a very well known playwright uh, who also I think worked with Kurt Weill the composer on, on some projects, but here it's a it's a it's a play about uh, that asks the question whether or not evil is uh, by nature or nurture, and uh, so we've got a family with a, a young daughter who at first seems really precocious and maybe a little overly precocious, but it turns out, like the title implies, she's nothing but bad. You know, she's just an evil kid who will do unspeakable things to get what she wants, and I I I feel like this has been remade. A couple of times. I mean, there was The Good Son with Macaulay Culkin, right, sure. which I feel might have actually been like a straight up remake with a slightly with a different title, but it, it, it's very similar in its storyline. Um, but but here, Patty McCormick is, is great. She, I think they used pretty much all of the cast of the stage play. In fact, there are some people from the stage play that this is either their only feature film or one of the only feature films they made. So the producers were very smart to kind of keep the Broadway cast. The play was a big hit. Um, I have seen it in repertory. I feel like I saw it done like locally by either like Dartmouth players or theater arts guild out at Palm Playhouse or something like that. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an enduring work about this, this young girl who, uh, a, a very angst ridden mother, uh, suspects may in fact be a murderer and, and it just kind of tightens the screws as it goes along. Um, and we, you know, we kind of know off the bat there's something off about this kid. So yeah, she's very manipulative, and she's
0: certainly at best she's spoiled. Yes, because everyone keeps talking about how lovely and wonderful she is, and but she has this how thing much for, for a, a like, basket of kisses? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like she has this fascination for, um, you know, stuff. Like she wants gifts and little trinkets and trifles, and uh, she ends up uh, sort of, you know doing things that uh, at least the suggestion is she's doing terrible things in order to get them and what's fascinating is is her mother uh, starts to suspect her mother who I mean this little girl has been raised she's eight years old although she looks a lot older in the movie she's been raised in this wonderfully loving home her father is an air force man he's not there much but the mother is there to take care of things and everything seems fine in the home except the mother discovers her origins were not what she thought and it it plays up her paranoia and fear about nature versus nurture and what sort of what she might have brought to her daughter's behavior unknowingly (laughs) <laughs> and uh, that I found pretty fascinating I mean, there's all these Freudian references the, uh, the the landlady who spends a lot of time with him and, and totally fawns over the daughter played by Evelyn Varden who will always to me be Icy Spoon from Night of the Hunter here oh, she's yeah, playing that's right. very much the same kind of character entirely self-possessed and totally clueless uh, about anything and uh, yeah she's really something she gets a lot more time and screen in this film so it's great to hang out with her She's really great. Um,
1: I mean, it's it's very melodramatic. It's very dark. Um, I love Henry Jones as the, the the kind of the twisted handyman who kind yes. of he knows right off the bat that she's bad, but likes to kind of poke push her buttons. Yes, uh, to torment her. So I mean, he's he's no catch himself, but the the way he kind of tries to get under uh, the kid's skin is is kind of a delight to watch it's yeah a, it's a nice uh touch
0: yeah i uh i really liked the film i liked the, it was really perverse in many respects for a film that came out in 1956 uh though i did compare it a little bit to night of the hunter and realized how much more interesting night of the hunter is visually oh this yeah. is not a film with much going on in
1: terms of well, the way it's shot because it was based on a play too and, and yeah there are scenes like if i listened to the commentary and they talked about the fact that a lot of scenes that happen outdoors actually did happen indoors on stage by virtue of being in a play and they tried to open it up as much as they could. Right. And then they had to change the ending from the play uh, because of, of course, the production code. Yeah. Uh, oh, that that weird coda where the uh, sort of disclaimer
0: yes. shows up is so perverse. Like, it is just, bizarre like, Of all the things that are perverse it's about this movie... It. It's worth
1: seeing it just for that.
0: Yeah, like, <laughs> I can't believe that this is... There's kind of a, a deus ex machina hand of God thing that happens and then the very end all the actors come out to basically introduce themselves have a curtain call which is bizarre in a feature film and and there's a moment there that I can't even describe that you just <laughs> got to see the film and go uh, okay so that happened
1: yeah it's very weird but yeah it's, it's, and it's directed by Mervyn Leroy who is again a very very well known studio hand he was very much a Michael Curtiz kind of director like he'd been around since the silent days uh, made some very great uh, pre-code films in the early 30s before the production code came in so maybe he's got a handle on stuff that kind of pushes the boundaries of decency and taste, uh, for the, for this production. But, um, he, in the, in the thirties, he was known for his zippy style. Uh, this film isn't so zippy. It's, it's a little over two hours long, I think. So, um, I guess they had to, maybe they had to cram as much of the play in. Maybe they had, uh-huh. I think maybe there was a con they had an agreement with the, the playwright that they had to use a certain amount of, of the play in the film, uh, which might explain, why there's so much, why it didn't get pared back a little bit, which I right. think it could have been. Right. But, uh, but it's still pretty riveting and goes by pretty fast, especially yeah. whatever. I mean, there is a kind of a camp aspect to it now, I think, especially mm-hmm. in Patty McCormick's performance. But uh, I think that's part of the reason why it kind of endures as a, as a classic that, someone like john waters yes yeah indeed indeed
0: um now before we wrap up our look at kids in in cinema um i wanted to draw your attention to a film that i'm glad we both got to see again called birth from 2004 and this is from british director jonathan glazer who's well known for music videos for massive attack and radiohead and for two other feature films sexy beast and under the skin i mean he has made a lot of feature films but the ones he's made have been really interesting and this yeah. one indeed can join those other two uh, there's a tight close-up of nicole kidman's face about 20 minutes into this movie that is amazing and shocking and they just hold it there yeah. for like a minute and a half as she emotions go through her her mind and, and it's all showing up on his face as this orchestral operatic music plays and it's Amazing. It's an amazing performance from her, but it's also a really thoughtful, interesting filmmaking taken in a direction you just don't see very often. Um, the story, roughly, is about... Uh, it has It's about a woman whose husband died 10 years earlier. He, I guess he had collapsed. He had a heart attack in Central Park. And she's very wealthy, and she's just about to get married again. This is the Nicole Kidman character to uh, Danny Houston, who... You know, I love Danny Houston, but he always plays kind of a sleaze. He's, yeah. he's almost
1: never a nice guy. He's almost movies. never sympathetic. Yeah. That yeah. opening speech where he talks about how hard he pursued Nicole Kidman. Yeah. Like, and it just, it's so, like, it sets the tone right away. He's yes. just so creepy of I him and how he just basically wore her down. That's right. To the point where she just said, Fine, I'll marry you. Kind yeah. Of yeah. Like, it just it seems like some sort of romantic hostage situation. Totally. Totally. Uh, and this boy, this 10 year old, shows up. He sort of
0: strolls into this apartment and claims to be her dead husband somehow reincarnated and they, they, they are fuzzy about the particulars but he just insists that he is and he wants her back he doesn't think she should get married to this other guy and she slowly over time starts to feel like maybe he is maybe somehow he has returned yeah. And he was, like, he was
1: like he was born at the exact moment that yes, her husband, that husband died. died it's kind of hinted at early, and, and, he, and he
0: knows things that that she he could never never have known, um, and there's there of course there is like a subplot here uh, where Anne Hayes is kind of involved, and she's she's together with her h- dead husband's brother Peter uh, Sarsgaard, Peter Stormare, uh, Peter Stormare, yeah, and there's Tarca. there's a story there. Uh, also here, Arliss Howard, Allison Elliott. Ted Levine. Oh yeah, he only has like one or two scenes, but he's great. He's great, and the the incredible Lauren Bacall. I mean, the casting here is just chef's kiss. Yes. It's so good. And this whole place just takes place. The whole story pretty much takes place in wintry New York, and in these incredible apartments on Park Avenue um, or, or Fifth Avenue. I mean, it's it's like the wealth. It's very. It reminds me both of Kubrick and of Polanski's *Rosemary's
1: Baby*. Well, there's there's some very obvious hints of *Rosemary's Baby*. Yeah. Of course, one being Nicole Kidman's haircut. Yes, you know, yes, indeed, very. She looks Faro. great in a pixie cut. She does. I, I think it's the only time I've seen her with one. But yeah, it's. Uh, I mean,
0: she is. They she's photographed so beautifully in this film. I mean, she just is so poised. Um, and ah, uh, I mean, it is such a mysterious film. I don't know that they stick the landing. Like this is one of those films that the, I don't know that the ending was entirely satisfying, but I was so engaged by it throughout that I almost I almost like will give it more rope than I would another movie just by virtue of how well it's made.
1: Yeah, the the, the class consciousness that pervades this film is is, is may not even, you may not even notice it on the first go round, but but the uh, you know the fact that the kid who claims to be the husband, um, you know, kind of comes from a lower middle class family or working class family and and the mother his mother seems to go along with this to some degree and Uh and that you know her motivation is a little a little strange and and uh there's just so many interesting character details scattered throughout the film that that it just keeps you gripped and it's it's a nice brisk film It, it doesn't waste a lot of time uh getting going and, and, and uh, revealing its its secrets over time. I, I like that fact. I think Glazer's films are always really well paced. Yes, yeah. Even if they seem to be taking kind of a, a slow languid kind of approach they still like kind of get to the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's very good with pacing. Yeah. And, and, ha-
0: and having come from I think music videos yes. he uses music and image so well. I mean it's so compelling. And it, it, certainly well, as I mentioned the indebtedness to Kubrick and to Polanski is definitely there but but, like, I just I just enjoy watching where he moves, how he moves his camera. He has it up a little bit high, following some characters around, and, and it, it floats a little bit, you know, in a way that is both uh, compelling and gripping, but also a little bit alienating. And I, I love that. And, and full marks to Cameron Bright, the kid whose face, I'm sure I've seen him in other things. He's, he's grown up now, but I've yeah. seen his face elsewhere because he's been in other stuff he's really good he has to carry a lot of this film on his face and he, he does a good job
1: yeah he plays it very close to the chest as it goes along and and uh but still manages to make you believe that he's like a you know a, a, i guess a 10 year old who who can you know put this across and uh and he's great in that and and uh and still you know he's got that otherworldly kind of glare that you know that you know, you either get turned off by it or you get sucked into it. It's 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 a very unusual performance by a young actor, and uh, I remember this film coming out at the time, and I didn't see it then. It kind of came and went pretty quickly. Yeah, the critics weren't very kind to it. Uh, I but, but in the context of Glazer's filmography, I find it works pretty well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, it's
0: it's really worth digging out. I mean, not just in the context of our conversation about kids yeah. <laughs> in movies that aren't for kids, but uh, but just if you, I, I would like, I think I'd like to see a birth. Uh, sexy beast and under the skin triple feature just to sort of figure out how he what the commonalities are there i mean this is a movie about love and grief um you know these are big themes and i guess some of that is in those other movies i mean sexy beast jason i mean it's a gangster picture basically but but it's about age too right uh and under the skin well who knows what that's about.
1: <laughs> yeah it's just creepy and amazing it's about tearing down the patriarchy from outer space or something, or something. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm with, I'll, I'll go along with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could really, I could really see under the skin again as well. Um, and we're, we're we're kind of running out of time, but I did want to give a shout out uh, to another great film with creepy kids. Now you didn't get a chance to see it, but I actually watched the, the double feature "Village of the Damned" and "Children of the Damned." Um, great British. Horror films from the early '60s, and uh, Village of the Dan, of course, is based on the novel The Midwich Cuckoos by John Wyndham. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, here we all had to read The Chrysalids by John Wyndham in in high school, and, uh, and which is is a it's actually a pretty good book, pretty fun book, especially because it starts in in, Labrad- in some sort of dystopian post apocalyptic Labrador, okay. and then, then they yeah, some- I didn't get to read that, and the, yeah, and then they have to somehow make their way to New Zealand. Which is called Noisy Land or something like that, like, which actually became the name of a band in Halifax, oddly enough. Um, uh, but he also wrote Day of the Triffids, which was turned into a pretty decent horror movie around that time about killer plants. And um, The Craken Wakes, which is another great horror novel, which I don't think has been turned into a film. But The Midwich Cuckoos*, about um, these alien children that just start magically appearing. Uh, all over the world in different communities uh, is, is pretty compelling. And they all have like psychic powers and clearly they're there to take over the world. Right. Um, you know, some, some villages just killed them on site, you know, cause they just, these creepy babies turned up and, and, but of course in civilized England, we don't do that. So of course the kids are allowed to mature and grow. And then of course, then they take over the village and right. con- control everybody with their mind control. It's uh it's pretty great, like, you know, just the, the primitive special effects of the, the, the glowing eyes and everything. And, and then the kids' performances are, are, are pretty wonderful. They're, they're so creepy. Um, and, uh, and and the, the first one's really snappy. Like, it really um, does justice to the novel while still being entertaining and, 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 uh, and over before you know it. Uh, Children of the Damned is a little less successful. It's not as interesting a story. Uh, it doesn't have as interesting a cast like George Saunders um, plays the, one of the main care, the main adult who's trying to figure out what to do about these kids. I like him. And the original; He's great. Uh-huh. Um, the cast in the sequel is, is serviceable. They're like a lot of character actors that are, but, but no strong central presence among them. And, uh, you know, these kids have, uh, these kids reappear, um, from different, uh, different lands and they have some sort of unspoken agenda and they all band together, but it's, it's lower budget. It has fewer locations and, uh, uh and it's a little more muddled in its, in its uh, storyline. But, but, you know, if you see one, you should probably see both. Well, that's about it for our look at films starring kids, kids comedic, kids creepy, kids uh, triumphant over evil, and, uh, kids just evil. And kids that are just evil. So, uh, th- yeah, there's, uh, there's some interesting films with children as their central characters. I'm sure we, we uh, we just kind of scratched the surface. There's That's lo- always
0: the case, here, you know. The, the, the,
1: I, I'm trying to remember my original list. The 400 Blows was on there. The True Film, which everyone should see. It's a crucial film that kicked off the French New Wave and has an amazing uh, performance by young Antoine Doinel in the lead uh, in the in the lead role. And uh, yeah, I, I, there's certainly lots of films from other countries that feature kids. Um, We've talked about some
0: on this podcast, you know, including uh, sure.
1: Au Revoir les Enfants, you yes, know that Louis, kind of thing. The Louis Mal film, which is also yeah. amazing. You know, there's also Oliver, either the musical or just Oliver Twist. There's some great versions of that story out there. So there's a lot more to look into. But but these 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 can be great stories uh, when told correctly, and and the kids are allowed to be kids. You know, they're not treated in an overly precious way. Um, you know, when you have kids acting in a realistic manner. Um, like Bad News Bears, which might be a little too realistic uh, for some, uh, you know, you can get some really great results. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this look at these films and get to check some of them out. Uh, anyway, my name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts reporter here in Halifax, and uh, you can reach me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Right, and I'm
0: Karsten Knox. I write about film as well. Uh, Flaw in the Iris is my blog, and that's my
1: Twitter handle, too. And if you're listening in here in Halifax, we hope you made it through Hurricane Dorian all right and got out in one piece and uh, are able to to listen to this when you get your power back and and at your leisure. And we'd like to thank the people that make it happen. One is, uh, of course, uh, CKDU 88.1 FM, who air this show every other Tuesday and uh, allow us the use of their production studios when the campus isn't on post-storm <laughs> yes. shutdown. We Oh, we also have a Patreon. We should say that. Yes. People, please feel free to donate to our Patreon.
0: And we're on Facebook.
1: Yes, yes. we're on Facebook. And, of course, you feel free to uh, leave a review on iTunes as well. That's always a helpful thing to do.
0: Sure. Um, oh, and thanks to uh, Village Soundcast Network for all that you do to get this out there into the world.
1: Thanks for joining us at the Parrot Podcast Palace, and we'll see you next time.
0: This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.